You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for well, it's episode number 502, I think. Um, yeah, we're not giving these dates anymore. These are not necessarily going to be recorded on the date of which are going to be uploaded. And on today's program, we're going to be looking at baptism, getting back to the Westminster Large Catechism. I don't want to spend too far or too long away from dealing with the Large Catechism. And uh, appreciate people who've been emailing me and uh, some people I know when they said that they have appreciated and uh, going through the larger catechism. So that's been encouraging to hear. And hopefully it's been a blessing to your own soul. It's been a blessing for me to go through it. And um, after this, I do plan on going through the the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think that's what I'll probably be going through next as we look through various things. So we got the first 165 questions done. My plan is today, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through this. Um, I'll probably, probably won't be the full hour today. I might try and keep the Lord's Supper as its own thing. So we'll see how things go anyway. Um, but today's program will be focused on mainly question 166 and question 167 of the Westminster Larger Catechism and mainly spending a lot of time dealing with um, how can we quote-unquote improve our baptism? How can we improve our baptism? Now, I'll get into that what that means in a second. It's probably not what immediately comes to mind. It's not like how can we make baptism better or something like that, but just how we can not just leave our baptism behind, but grow in the things, in the reality that is signified and sealed in that sacrament of baptism. But before we get on to, that's really question 167, how to improve our baptism. Question 166. Question 166. Because in a lot of ways, what we're really doing, either you listening to this and implementing and applying these truths to your life, really is you improving your baptism. As in, you're not just leaving behind and just say, hey, that's just something you did once and that's it. The reality of what is signified and sealed in, in its doctrine and everything else, is to be followed and lived out. And question 166 says this of the Westminster Larger Catechism, Unto whom is baptism to be administered? Unto whom is baptism to be administered? This is controversial, to say the least, in the church history. And it's not as simple as maybe first looked at. Now, before I read out the answer for the Westminster Larger Catechism, the short answer is this. The short answer is this. And I think that all the groups I can think of in my head at the moment would agree with this. 
to whom and to whom is baptism to be administered? Well, to the visible church. Now, I'm going to get to in a second who that is. But it's really the visible church. For our Baptist friends, they would say, well, the visible church are those who make a credible profession of faith. I'm not a Baptist, I used to be a Baptist, but the the teaching of the Reformed faith, 16th, 17th century onwards, prior even, is that the, the visible church, the expression of the church on earth, is not just made up of those who make a pr- profession of faith in Christ, but it also includes it also includes their children the promises unto you and unto your children so it says here in question 166 baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church And so strangers from the covenant of promise, till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him, but infants descending from parents, either both or but one of them profess faith in Christ and obedience to him, are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. Now, a lot of our understanding of baptism, let's face it, as Presbyterians, is connected in with our view of circumcision. Now, I'm not going to go back over that again. I spent a good bit of time in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, and I spent a good bit of time, I think, I think it was episode number 495, 496, so I don't want to go back over that ground again. But, a lot of our understanding of baptism and those who are to receive baptism is based upon circumcision. Because circumcision in the Old Testament, prior to Christ signifies and seals the same thing as baptism seals in the New New Testament. And you say, well, why did it change? Well, in the Old Testament, the, the signs and seals were bloody, pointing toward the one who would come and shed his blood. The removing of the, uh, the filth of the flesh. And circumcision is then replaced by the washing of baptism, also removing and washing. There's a picture of washing of the flesh of the person who is the the recipient of baptism. So a lot of our understanding, and also there's that connection, and again, Colossians chapter 2, is it, um, I'm trying to remember the exact... Verses, I think it's verses 10, 11, 12 of Colossians chapter 2, that what is 
spiritually set before us, when I say spiritually, in baptism, is what is spiritually set before us also in circumcision. And Colossians, that second chapter, very much ties the two of them together. So, all within the visible church in the Old Testament were to receive the sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the Old Covenant. That is circumcision. That wasn't just given to Moses, that was prior to Moses, that was Abraham. And and that wasn't just given to Abraham, that was given to his household. And not just that generation, but to the next generation after them. All that were within the visible church. Basically, the visible church at that time, and this is why sometimes people get mixed up with it, they think, oh, well, the circumcision is an ethnic reality and all this kind of thing. Israel of the Old Covenant, later Judah, etc., that was the visible church. They and their children were to be circumcised, recognizing that they were God's covenant people. Now, it didn't make them part of the covenant, but it was recognizing that they were a part of, you could say, the visible church. We'll use the visible church expression just hopefully to make things a little bit simpler. And one passage we could look to, because I haven't really spent um, a lot of time in this program looking over Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is a major passage. It's a passage that could be preached in reference to infant baptism. Actually, I remember years ago, long before, maybe about two, three years before my view properly changed, I remember just highlighting parts of Genesis 17. I can't remember the exact verse, but I remember just, it might have been verse 9, thy seed after the inner generations and things like that. And I remember thinking, this everlasting covenant spoken about verse 7, to be a God unto thee and thy, thy seed after thee. That if, if Israel is continued on, you could use the term true Israel or spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. If that continues on, I was thinking, because I was a dispensationalist at the time, then, hmm, maybe they're right about pedobaptism. But that's, but that's, by the by, what I would encourage you to do, if you're listening to this, just say, for example, you're listening to this. I don't think that this program is going to by itself necessarily convince anybody. I think this is probably more people who are already reformed. You, you're free to listen. Of course you are. Um, and maybe you will be convinced. Who knows? But I think, yeah, it's probably mainly people who are already convinced of the reformed faith. And reformed faith, I mean, Westminster Confession of Faith, etc. and so on. And then increasing your knowledge in that area. If you're like, 
completely skeptical and you're not convinced at all, probably there are early, earlier shows where I go through this very, very slowly. Years ago, you won't find it on iTunes because iTunes only has the last previous 100 programs. And it's like episode number somewhere around 150. And maybe I should look it up right now. But if you go on to either go on to getaradio.com, type in the word baptism, infant baptism, and I change, and this program is probably back in 2015. Not that I changed then, it was actually before that, but that's when I properly went through it. And I went through why I changed from being credo baptist to pedo baptist and a lot of this kind of stuff factors into that how you view the visible church and the visible expression of the church on earth and the how to put it one of the reasons i did that those program or series of programs i think even did one or two critiques after that just to is that i didn't want people to think that well, he doesn't care what the scriptures teach. He wants to go with tradition. And you may listen to that and not be convinced, okay? But you think, well, he's okay. He's still at least following the scriptures to the best of his understanding, things like that. And I think that was mainly my reason for doing that. So if you want to listen to this and then listen to more, I don't know how good of a program that programs they were, but I think it was around episode number 150, maybe 152, something like that. Anyway, so let's go through this. So Genesis chapter 17 is a very, very important one. And it says in Genesis 17, I'm just going to read not the whole chapter, but just parts of the chapter. Verse 2, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And this is... God speaking to Abram, walk before me and be thou perfect. So, um, he says, you call him Abraham in verse five, the father of many nations, and he will make him. And verse seven is important. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Verse 9, God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. Uh, verse 11, ye shall, be, ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. So this is token of the covenant. And again, in, in the new covenant, we have baptism. So, and who was to be baptized? Well, believers, or those who make, you know, at least in an external sense, because I say believers, is we don't know people's hearts, but those who make a profession of faith and their children. Those who make a profession of faith and their children. The household was part of the covenant. Actually, in the New Testament, you'll notice, not even, not explicitly infant baptisms but household baptisms the the in, in the old testament the old, the whole household was circumcised 
In the New Testament, the whole household was bap- was baptized, is still continues to be baptized. Um, you might say, well, it doesn't mention any children being baptized. It doesn't need to. It simply doesn't need to. Um, children were never excluded from the covenant. And that's very, very clear. Once you get to Acts chapter 2, where they're all Jews, they all understand the promises unto you and unto your children, this this kind of promise is, is again, nothing new whatsoever. And when they were called to be baptized, uh, this is, um, grab here from Acts chapter 2, um, verse 38 onwards, Acts chapter 2. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children. And told her far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So, promises unto you and unto your children. Again, but it wasn't anything new. Even if it just said the promises to you, um, there was a promise that went throughout the the scriptures, not just of that generation made a profession of faith, also to their children who they were to raise within the covenant itself. Verse 19 of Genesis 17, God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. Thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. Ishmael was also circumcised as well. So the, the household is part of the visible church. And by virtue of that, the household, all of the household, are to be baptized. It doesn't mean, I know, I can hear the objections now. No, it does not mean all of them will grow up to be believers. It doesn't. It points towards them. Now, if the the sign and seal is rejected in unbelief, it is to them a curse. It is condemnation. But if they trust in what is signified and sealed, if they trust in Jesus Christ, whom circumcision is pointing towards and baptism is pointing towards, then it is to saving their souls by faith and by faith alone. In unbelief, it is condemnation. So if you have been baptized and you have not believed in in the Jesus who is set before them, signified and sealed, who will wash away their sins for all those who look to Jesus, then they're covenant breakers, and that baptism is greater condemnation upon that person. Now, let's go through question 166 point by point, if the case is anything. And it says, baptism is not to be ministered to any, any of their out of the visible church, and so strangers for the covenant of promise. So, 
we are never to just go into pagan lands in an effort to grow the church and just baptize people who have no profession of faith in the Christian in the Christian religion. And so strangers from the covenant promise till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But infants descending from parents, either both or but one of them professing faith in Christ and obedience to him are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. So, um, and one of the things it references here is Genesis 17, 7, which we read earlier and a couple of other places in Genesis 17. Also references Galatians 3, 9. So then they be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It is one covenant. There's different administrations of that covenant, but it is one in substance. The covenant is one in substance, even though its outward elements administration have changed circumcision is bloody baptism is not bloody but in substance points toward the same Christ the same savior the same redeemer and it's important we baptize our children because of the warning is the same as we should in the Old Testament baptize or circumcise our children it says in verse 14 of Genesis 17 and an uncircumcised man child whose flesh his foreskin is not circumcised that soul shall be cut off from his people he hath broken my covenant and there's a sense in which the the children of a a person within the visible church, um, children of parents within the visible church, and they're not baptized, it is really turning away from that sign and seal that should be applied, administered to that child, and rejecting them and not really receiving them into the bosom of the church. How that works itself out can vary. Now, at the same time, look, you might say, well, how about Baptists maybe who don't baptize their children maybe until they're about 12 and they make a profession of faith, something like that. Well, I would still see them as part of the visible church. They are part of visible church. It's just... They've been treated as if they are not by not baptizing them. That's really it. Um, and again, we have to remember there's a mixed there's a mixed characteristic to the church. If we are, and, and there's good intentions when people do this, if we are seeking a a completely converted we would love this, but if we're seeking a completely converted, through our own means, I shall say, rather than just being obedient to God, 
membership. If we think that everybody in the visible church is saved, that wasn't the case, by the way, in the Old Testament. They are not all Israel, that are all of Israel. There's two different Israels mentioned. One's visible, one's in, one in, invisible. Those are actually born again. You, in large sense, you don't really know. Visible Israel in the Old Testament, referred to in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, are those who profess faith in Jehovah, who are part of that nation of Israel. To be part of that nation of Israel, you need a profession of faith in Jehovah. You're part of the visible church. But not everybody in that visible expression of the church were saved, were they? So, what do we think about that? Well, the gospel must be preached. And we also try to realize we should well, we should discourage just mere nominal outward Christianity and a, and a false professions professions all this kind of thing, but we should also realize that we don't want just a situation where everybody needs a fancy testimony or something like that. I want to be don't want to drift into other areas here, but baptism really should be, do do the parents, imperfect people, imperfect, do they profess faith in Jesus Christ? If you think in the Old Testament, if you're going to the next one, if you think in the Old Testament, what about that generation that were in the wilderness? Were they a very faithful generation? No, they weren't. A whole generation wiped out by a few. And then prior to Joshua chapter 6, when the walls of Jericho come down, in Joshua chapter 5, what happens to the children of that generation? They're circumcised. So what I'm saying is, I think that there's a lot of things about baptism and circumcision that we really need to flesh out and think about. And the nature of the visible church, that which we really, as we, I, I think we really got to get back to a lot of the older writers on these things. And realize that There are there are challenges within the church. There are difficulties in the church. There are not every church member is going to tick every box in terms of yes. To be a community member, you should have a credible profession of faith and all these kind of things. Yes, of course. But I think there are complexities in, in church life and in the expression of the visible church 
you might have people who are disciplined, people who are this, that, and the other. And you wonder who is saved and who is not saved, I guess is what I'm saying. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know people's hearts. Now, this is not a get-out-of-jail card either. We need to be faithful. We need to apply the Word of God. We need to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We need to call people to obedience to Him and to His will, to glorify His name, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And all who will come, we seek for those people to come. And be blessed under the gospel message. And then in that multitude of people, we also point out those who are among them, this is mainly the preaching and other things, that if they don't have a credible profession of faith, if be not deceived, neither drunkards nor fornicators nor thieves nor homosexuals, other people like that, abuse themselves with mankind, as it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. You show somebody, if you're addicted to, to, to drink, drugs, all this kind of thing, be not deceived, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of... Don't expect perfection in church life. Don't expect people to get everything right. And Because when you have a situation like that, when you have generations of people growing up in the church, people growing up, people, different things like that, you're not going to have everything as lined up as you might in an independent church. But we have to still say, okay, here's how I might like church versus the way the Bible lines up church. Do you understand what I'm saying? I really do think that when we think about baptism, sorry if I'm kind of going off in a little direction here, but we really need to think of the nature of the visible church. It's not even really an issue about baptism per se. It really starts off with the nature of the visible expression of the, the covenant, the covenant of grace, the, the expression of the visible people of God on earth, And I suppose what I'm saying is that we should often be more gracious toward maybe elements of the church on the edge. We wonder if they're, not, they're part of the church at all. But there's, there's so many things I could go into here. But um, I would encourage you, if you're looking into this topic further, think about the visible expression of the church. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and their children.
Okay. Spent way more, too much time on that. Question 167. How is our baptism to be improved by us? This might seem like a, a strange question. This does not mean, this does not mean that we're, you know, we're trying to change something in baptism in order to make it better. What improving means that we just don't do it once. Well, we don't really do it. We re- we're recipients, really, of it in a large sense. And then you're done. It says in question 167, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation. And when we are present at the administration of it to others, by serious and thankful considerations of the nature of it, and by the ends of which Christ instituted it. The privileges benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ unto whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace by endeavoring to live by faith to make our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those who have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. Let's think about this now. Now, we may say, oh, look at all the people baptized and never ever come to church and are... That has always been the case. And look, in the Old Testament, you are going to find people who are scoundrels, sons of Belial, who were themselves circumcised. We don't know how people are going to turn out. The thing is, we have to be faithful to who is in the visible church, not trying to predict where they're going to end up in the future. We do our best with people. Of course we do. Pray for them. But it's ultimately salvation is of the Lord in the Lord's hands. It is needful for us not to just do it, just see it as a one-time event and that's it. And it's it's much neglected, this. What is being spoken... And this was written when? Middle of the 17th century. Now, just to quote here from J.G. Voss's commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. And one of the, he does a couple of question and answers on this. This is um, quite, uh, page 480 of that commentary question one following question 167 what does the catechism mean by quote improving our baptism unquote by improving our baptism the catechism means using it to good purpose in our daily life thus it means experiencing its meaning and working out its implication in actual life 
lived out, the reality of it, we are saying, because we've been baptized, we are, this is my own commentary now, we are, we don't belong to ourselves. If you've been baptized, you don't belong unto yourselves. You belong to another. And how is that to be lived out in daily life, lifelong? It says, in the time of temptation, when we are present in the administration of, of it, in the time of temptation, we were tempted to sin. We say, no, I don't belong unto myself. I'm not to, it's not my will, but the Lord's will we're supposed to live by. Because we have been washed, we are baptized into Christ. When we are present in the administration of it, others, we also, we, we're, we're to be reminded of our own baptism when we are before others, when we, when we see another person being baptized. The directory of public worship of God, this was um, a direct, one of the directories. It was a, an act. Uh, the directory of public worship of God, um, it's, often, it's often published with the Westminster, some of the, Westminster Confession of Faiths, um, was agreed upon by the Assembly Divines of the Westminster with the, the assistance of commissioners from the Church of Scotland as a part of the covenanted, that's the 1643 Solemn League and Covenant, a part of the covenanted uniformity religion between the Churches of Christ and the Kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland. So this is, we, these islands swore in the Solomon Covenant of 1643 to have uniform, to strive for the uniformity of religion. And this was basically an act of the General Assembly in 1645 toward that end. So this is an act of the the General Assembly, make it part of um, an important part of Second Reformation attainments. So I think it's important we study it more than we currently do, than it currently is by many Presbyterians. But it says in this, in the section in this directory, of the administration of the sacraments, it says, and this is about the minister, and these and the like instructions, the minister is to use his own liberty and godly wisdom as the ignorance and error or errors of the doctrine of baptism and the edification of the people shall require. This is in the section of administration of the sacraments. And it says then in the next part, he is also to admonish all who that are present to look back to their baptism, to repent of their sins against their covenant with God, to stir up their faith, to improve. Mm, that's an interesting phrase there. To improve and make right use of their baptism and of the covenant sealed thereby betwixt God and their souls. So don't just stay where you are in your faith. Improve and make right use of your baptism. If you've been baptized, do not neglect this great and solemn duty. Look back to the reality of which you have been called 
to live. You're to live for Christ. In time of temptation, you're tempted by sin. You, you, you are to remind yourself that you belong to Christ. You've been baptized into Christ. That we are present in the administration of others by serious and thankful considerations of the nature of it. And again, these things will only bless you by faith and by faith alone in Christ. And of the ends for which Christ instituted it. And then think about it like this, a very, very simple way of... It, the baptism sets before people in a visible way the gospel, the need for washing. And how are we washed? Not by physical water, but by the blood of Christ. It says the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby our solemn vow made thereunto. But being humbled for our sinful defilement, are falling short of and walking contrary to it. So, like, when we see, say, for example, the baptism of others, we realize, are we living in a way that is consistent with somebody who says, I belong to Christ, I am no longer my own, I have been washed, I've been sanctified, when we realize we fall short, it ought to humble us. Now, with both of the sacraments, when they're set before us and we have faith in the Christ, in the Christ set signed and sealed before us, it should help us in our assurance of the pardon of sin, it says in this answer, and of other blessings sealed in the sacrament by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ, it's not all just about making us feel bad. It's also about encouraging us. It's also about strengthening us, especially in, in assurance. For example, if you're struggling with assurance and you see these tokens in, the sa- in both sacraments now I'm talking about, of Christ's love toward you who are washed, who is, in the Lord's Supper now, being fed and whose heart is made glad by Christ, pictured with the wine. It should, well, it does, strengthen the weakest faith that we have. The sacraments are really to be, I mean, for the baptism, the sacrament is to that baptism is, is to be for all in the visible church. The Lord's Supper is different then because it's somebody who has the ability to examine himself. And it says here, how do we quicken it? How do we, sorry, how do we improve our baptism? By endeavoring to live by faith. By endeavoring to to live by faith. It says in Galatians 3.26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ. For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, put on Christ. You see what's been set before us? The reality of what has been set before us in baptism is to be lived out in our daily life, life long. So baptism is not just a one and done 
but it is something to be lived out for the rest of our life because we have put on Christ. And just to read the rest of question 167, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those who have there given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized in the name of the same spirit in one body. So you're being baptized. You've been baptized. What that sign what your baptism does is signifies and seals what what hopefully by by faith and by faith alone is a reality in your life. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it is a reality in your life. And then you and you grow in that. You grow in holiness. You grow in sanctification. Lord willing by grace, you grow in assurance of faith as when you see this that it encourages you to continue to walk, to, to love other brothers who are also part of the visible church and have been baptized by the same spirit into the same body. You're part of the one body. And that's to remind us all because baptism is not just a family affair. It's not just a day for pictures or whatever. And I'm not saying you can't, you know, it is a, it is to a certain degree, but it's it's about the church. Baptism has been given to the church. The Lord's Supper has been given to the church, and in baptism, really the gospel has been set before the people of Almighty God. So, improve your baptism by. Thus, it means experiencing. JG Voss says. It's meaning and working out its implications in actual life. So I'm just going to read one or two things here that J.G. Voss says as we wrap up the program here. Question five in the section on improving baptism. From question 167. It's on page 481 of um, the PR edition. What ways of improving our baptism does the catechism specify? The catechism specifies a number of Christian experiences and duties, such as being humbled for our sins, growing up to assurance of salvation, drawing strength from Christ, for mortifying sin and quickening grace, etc. So we're not improving our our baptism if we are living in gross immorality actually we're showing disdain for our baptism if we continue on in particular heinous sins the various experiences Voss says taken together mean continuous serious undertaking to live a faithful consistent life according to the teachings of the word of God all along the line as baptism stands for salvation from sin improving our baptism takes involves taking salvation from sin seriously in actual living experiences so there's two perhaps you're listening to this i hope you know that you've been baptized and things like that and there's a possibility here. There's two possibilities. Either you are growing closer to Christ, mortifying sin, being hopefully by God's grace built up and encouraged 
with the sacraments, seeing the tokens of the Christ's love, and by faith and by faith alone you are finding peace and joy that passes all understanding more and more. And you are thereby improving your baptism that way, looking back to your baptism as the the directory of public worship says. I just try to find this. I think I lost my... Uh, don't know why I took out that bookmark. Okay, so it says, um, Director of Public Worship, he is also to admonish all that are present to look back to their baptism. So when you go to somebody else's baptism, look back to your baptism. And when it comes to mind, you say, there's an area in my life that I have drifted. There's an area in my life that is not giving honor and glory to Christ. There's an area in my life that rejects in a lived-out sense, my baptism, that I have been washed, have been sanctified, that I truly belong to Christ, I don't belong to myself, I'm to live for Him, that then, as the Director of Public Worship says, to repent of their sins against their covenant with God, to stir up their faith. So in doing this, this is not to crush you, but to say no to sin, to turn away from it, to see the heinousness of it, and thereby to improve, it says, and make right use of their baptism and of the covenant sealed thereby betwixt God and their souls. And in the process of this, it's not about yourself and your performance and how well you're doing, but that you are closer to your God, that you do not neglect the reality and the blessing and the privilege of someone who has been baptized with Christ. Now, you may be somebody who has been physically baptized, but are a covenant breaker. You have rejected what has been set before you in baptism, and you despise it. And it will bring greater condemnation upon you. And the the thing to do is not just to get rebaptized or anything like that. It is to repent of your covenant breaking. It's to repent of your despising of what was set before you in baptism and embracing by faith and by faith alone the Jesus the Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God, whose blood and blood alone washes us clean from our sins, as surely as the I think it was the Dutch formula when they baptized their, their infants, they say as surely as the water, this water washes you clean from the filth of your flesh, so will the blood of Christ wash you clean from your sins. So that when you see this, it encourages you. We say that the sacraments are a sign, pointing to a sign, and a seal. And a seal encourages you of the authenticity of the promise made. And so when you see that seal, when you see that promise set before you, and it's a seal of the promise of God, it, by faith, we see it, we apply it to our lives, we we, we see sin, we, we put it, sin to death and we grow and we we love that Christ who's been set before us in baptism also in the Lord's table as well and we grow in that and we study about what 
you've got to know as well, in order to improve your baptism, you've got to know about the doctrine of baptism. You've got to, because if you don't understand about it, you're neglect and you're just, and you're willfully, willfully not thinking about it or just putting it aside. How many times in the Bible, various references to Roman, in Romans, Colossians, and other places, does it speak about baptism? Should we neglect that reality, that blessing that has been afforded to us who have been washed, and this picture that has been set before the entire visible church? And the entire visible church, baptized, is to improve your baptism putting sin to death, growing in faith, and in so doing, growing closer to God and having your faith strengthened and assured. So that when you breathe your last, and as you get closer to your last moments, you would feel that, not even just about baseball feeling, but you have a greater closeness with God, that He would assure your heart that you surely belong to Him that you know and you leave this world that the Lord will say to you well done thou good and faithful servant so Lord willing this has been a blessing to you hopefully it has been any questions we get a radio that's M-E-G-I-D-D-O radio at gmail.com this has been Paul Flynn talk to you again next week <laughs>